Well, I can tell I'm at the uh, tail end of the day. There are like 10 glasses of water here. I hope I don't take the wrong one. But uh, thank you very much. It's uh, great to see you all. I appreciate the opportunity to speak here. Uh, this is a great society. They originally asked me to uh, pick one topic, and uh, I looked at the list, and they asked me, and it looked like pteroriasis rubropilaris would be the one that uh, fell the closest into my wheelhouse. So I chose that, but I also told them that uh, there's no way that I can spend an hour boring you with pteroriasis rubropilaris. And so uh, at the end of the talk, uh, at, in the last part, whatever that winds up being, I've, gone, I've decided to pull out some thoughts I've had after doing uh, dermatology for 25 years that you won't necessarily find in the textbook. So it'll be a two-part talk. Just out of wonder, by a show of hands, how many people here have actually made a first diagnosis of PRP, pityriasis rubopilaris? Yeah, that's, what, that's what I thought. Uh, as, as we'll go through, this is not all that common. If you get a reputation for treating it, you will find that you treat most of it in your geographic area. So uh, I guess I have to start with my conflicts of interest. I don't think I have any conflicts for this talk, uh, but I have done research for this list of companies. Uh, perhaps the ones that would be most uh, relevant to this would be Amgen, AbbVie, maybe Celgene. Uh, also, I've consulted for this group of companies within the last year. So, Pityriasis rubopilaris was first described back in 1828, and it was named by Besnier. Uh, Besnier is most known for uh, dis uh, his uh, discussion of itching following atopic dermatitis. Basically, PRP consists of a triad, reddish-orange scaly plaques, a palmoplantar keratoderma that's quite striking, and these keratotic follicular papules. The key with this condition is it can be absolutely miserable because it progresses to erythroderma very commonly, and these people are just very red, very raw, uh, somewhat scaly, and just can go on for weeks, months, or years of being uncomfortable from their skin. And this is, if you think of one picture with PRP, this would be the guy. One, one uh, other caveat, I do not, I've never taken a lot of photos in my practice. So I did pull a lot off the internet, and uh, the references are on the bottom. This Dermnet.com, I think, was getting a lot of photos lifted, and so they now put their logo right across the middle. But uh, that's what we're stuck with. Now, the pathophysiology of PRP is totally unknown. Most cases tend to be sporadic. There is a familiar form that exists. It's associated with a gene called the CAR gene. I am not a geneticist. I have no idea what the CAR gene is, but in case it shows up on some silly border view or anything, it is. Uh, the hypothesis is that it may be related to an abnormal immune response to an unknown antigenic stimulus, which says basically they have no idea. And uh, there have been a few case reports of uh, strep setting it off. The incidence that's in the literature is 1 in 3,500 to 1 in 5,000 dermatology patients, which means I should be diagnosing in my practice two new cases of this a year, which I do not see happening. So I think that's overstated. It's probably closer to 1 in 10,000 to 1 in 20,000. If you think of the size of your practices that you practice in and how many PRP patients there are, it's probably not quite that high. 
There's no predilection for race. They say that males and females are uh, affected equally, and they may be, but I tend to see this more in males in my practice. It's, there's a congenital uh, version that has its onset in early childhood, but the acquired version tends to uh, have a bimodal distribution of coming on toward the end of the first or the early second decade of life and uh, in the people's 40s in their fifth decade. There uh, is not a lot of mortality with this disease. There may be because of the erythroderma, but there is significant morbidity in terms of causing a lot of pain, a lot of discomfort, coming from the palmo plantar keratoderma. Uh, there can be a very thick nail dystrophy, which makes the nails uncomfortable, and uh, the erythroderma. So I'm gonna talk a bit more about the clinical presentation, and we'll talk about the history and the onset, the physical findings. There is a classification system for something that's as rare as this, and there was a section I was gonna talk about etiology, and this is it. There isn't any known. So. Uh, the history of PRP is that it can have a gradual onset if it's familial, but when someone gets it and there's no one in the family who's had it, when in the acquired form, it is an acute onset. It has what we call a craniocaudal spread. It starts up on the head, usually in the scalp, then spreads down to the face, then you see palmoplantar lesions, and then it spreads down from the head onto the uh, trunk and down the extremities. The findings are in the skin, the nails, the mucous membranes, uh, and especially in the eyes. And what you see are these orange-red or salmon-colored scaly plaques that have very sharp borders, island sparing. There are only four conditions in which there's island sparing, so it's very nice when you see island sparing. You're in a distinct differential of psoriasis, CTCL, mycosis fungoides, PRP, and rare cases of severe atopic dermatitis. So if you see island sparing, you definitely have a nice differential. Uh, you see follicular hyperkeratosis starting on the fingers, but a lot on the elbows, and you can see it all over the body. You see this distinct palmoplantar keratoderma, which you saw in that uh, slide with that gentleman with an orangish hue and painful fissures. And pruritus can be variable. I have had patients who are so itchy, I give them my cell phone and they're calling me every few days. This is one of those conditions that if you see this and someone's severe, I like them to have my cell phone because they can go from bad to worse very quickly. So this is a fairly typical uh, picture. And you can see these follicular keratotic papules uh, in an area that probably had some island sparing and these well-demarcated orange scaly plaques. This was, I thought, one of the better pictures this is also a good picture. It shows a gentleman where it started up on his uh, head and neck and is beginning to spread downward probably. This is a fairly typical appearance. I really like this picture because of this sparing, island sparing. You can imagine that this is very inflamed and rather uncomfortable. Palmer plantar keratoderma, this is uh, fairly classic. And there are also nail findings. And the nail findings are a yellow-brown discoloration you see some subungual hyperkeratosis. You see this longitudinal ridging, some thickening, some splinter hemorrhages. But the key to this, when you're trying to distinguish from psoriasis, is you generally do not see pitting. So it's a little bit different. And this is a uh, nice picture of PRP with the nail changes. And you can see really not pitting, but just the changes with the longitudinal ridging. Uh, one of two of these had, had some subungual hyperkeratosis. What about mucous membranes? You know, 
with regard to the mouth, you do occasionally see pain and irritation. And the PRP that I've seen, and I've carried about eight or nine cases over my career with the erythroderma, I haven't seen much mouth involvement. It is reported, and there's this diffuse white appearance to the buccal mucosa, some lacy white plaques. You might think, because it's papulosquamous, if this is a presenting onset, you might think about lichen planus at first. Clinically, it becomes very obvious that it's not lichen planus. You can also see these gray-white papules and plaques. Uh, it's erythematous, but the mucous membranes are always erythematous. Uh, you can see some erosions as well. And this was the only picture that I could find of mucous membranes involving mainly the tongue a little bit in here. So what about the eyes? One of the classic features of the erythroderma of PRP is ectropion which, with dry eyes and blurred vision. And almost to a person, if they have erythroderma, they're going to have some degree of ectropion. The picture that I have is rather uh, severe and extreme. Uh, they do get this discharge, and this is pretty common. I've seen that in about half the patients with erythroderma. So it, this, that's a pretty extreme but classic picture of the erythroderma, uh, of the eyes in the atropion. Now, there is a classification for PRP. I don't know if you would ever need to know it, but it does occur in various types, including the classic adult type. There's an atypical uh, adult type that's class 2 or type 2. The type 3 is a classic juvenile, and the type 4 is what they call circumscribed juvenile. It's my opinion that the circumscribed juvenile is fairly misnamed because that can progress to an erythroderma. Uh, type 5 is a typical juvenile uh, picture. There's an HIV-associated and then a malignancy-associated uh, PRP. Now, I, I will say that I was able to find some good pictures for four of these types, and so some of this will be a little bit repetitive of other pictures, but I think it's worth getting a picture of this because if it ever presents to you, you really want to be able to make the diagnosis because uh, while it can last for a while, these patients can be helped. And they're some of the most gratifying patients to help because they are absolutely that uncomfortable. So the classic adult PRP is extremely common when it comes to PRP. It's about half of all PRP. It is acute and onset, has the classic features we've already talked about with the erythroderma and islands sparing the palmal plantar uh, keratoderma, and you may see the follicular hyperkeratosis. It has a quote-unquote good prognosis in that 80% remit within three years. That's good for PRP, but if you think about having an erythroderma for up to three years, it's not really the uh, greatest uh, thing to have happen to you. Again, this is a pretty typical appearance of the classic adult. You can imagine what this woman feels like. This is that red raw appearance, and there is just almost no way to get this person comfortable and we'll talk about treatment in a few minutes about what you can do. And sometimes when they're this bad, they will respond to treatment a little bit quicker. This is a great picture showing how it began in the follicular areas, but you can see how occasionally it looks a little psoriasiform and, and how it can be hard to tell apart. Again, the palmal plantar keratoderma. What I found fascinating about this picture, and I've never seen this, but you actually have island sparing on some of the areas of the palm here, even like right in there. So that island sparing can even extend to the uh, palms and the soles. Again, classic picture of the soles 
with the orangish uh, keratodermis, salmon colored, if you will. So the atypical adult PRP is a bit more uncommon. It represents 5%, and it's more ichthyosiform. There are some eczematous changes. It does result in alopecia. I've had one person, one patient with this subtype, and it has a very long duration, about 20 years. The good news is for this one, at least with my patient, it wasn't nearly as pruritic. It didn't have that burny, stingy, raw sensation. But these patients, again, can be pretty miserable. And this is a pretty classic appearance of these ichthyosiform changes, the island spearing involving broad areas. Another great picture of this atypical adult PRP with the island sparing. This was the person uh, who had those nail changes that I showed you earlier. Now, the classic juvenile PRP, again, fairly uncommon. 10% of the cases has its onset often by age 2. They say it's clinically similar to type 1, but you don't often see as much erythroderma with this. And it remits a lot sooner. The average duration is about a year which is uh, good for the parents. The treatment of this is very difficult because the sorts of things you would use in an adult, you wouldn't use uh, in a young child a lot of the time. This is a pretty classic appearance with the palmoplantar type lesions. This is the same patient. And this is, often has its onset around the buttocks, this follicular hyperkeratosis. It's very common around the nose and around the eyes. The circumscribed juvenile PRP is about, accounts for about 25% of the cases. It has a prepubertal onset. So I've had kids present with this in the age range of about 8 to 11, 8 to 12. Uh, nowadays, with puberty coming on more often, it seems to occur a little bit younger. It has the follicular hyperkeratosis of the knees and elbows. It's very sharply demarcated. The fact that the literature says it really progresses. The last case or two of this I've seen have progressed on uh, to be fairly widespread. And the time length uh, of the progression is unclear, whereas the adult version of the atypical uh, PRP lasts for 20 plus years. This usually improves uh, by the time people are in their teens. And this would be a pretty typical uh, picture of the circumscribed juvenile. Again, around the eyes, you can see the follicular accentuation of the lesions here. This is a more advanced case, and this is more typical of the circumscribed juvenile that I've been seeing late, the last two cases that I've seen. And you can see how initially most of these patients present and you think they have psoriasis. Their scalps are scaling, their knees are scaling like this and you treat them as psoriasis, and they're recalcitrant. So if you ever see a kid whose psoriasis is not responding, you should immediately begin to think about PRP. So the last uh, two, three types of PRP that I'm going to talk about, I couldn't find pictures of. There's an atypical juvenile form uh, that is familiar. It has very prominent follicular hyperkeratosis. The, I've never seen this type. It reports scleroderma-like changes on the palms and soles. The erythroderma is infrequent. It has an early onset, meaning probably age 5 or below, but it does have a chronic course. Of course, if it's familial, the family will often know that they, they have it, and it's a lot of supportive treatment. There have been people who have used retinoids for this, but you can't use them all the time because of the issues 
with uh, bone fusion and bony changes in young kids and growth plates. So if you're going to use systemic retinoids, you probably have to take these kids on and off of them. The HIV-associated PRP has uh, some PRP-type lesions, but as with all things HIV, uh, you can see atypical presentations with nodular cystic and pustular acneform lesions and these elongated uh, follicular plugs and lichen spinulosis type lesions. As with a lot of things HIV, it's very resistant to standard treatment, but it may respond, as does psoriasis and other conditions, to good antiretroviral treatment or uh, treatment for the HIV. So I, it's, from my reading, the HIV-associated usually occurs in people with uh, low T4 counts, and as they get better, the PRP gets better. So as we talked about, the differential diagnosis for PRP, the number one we'll start is the one on the bottom is psoriasis. Almost every case of PRP that I've ever diagnosed that hasn't come to me full-blown has, has progressed from psoriasis. You can also think about cutaneous T-cell lymphoma, uh, just generalized erythroderma, generalized exfoliative dermatitis. I don't like that diagnosis. I've never made that diagnosis. You can always, almost always find a cause for erythroderma. So I, I urge you, if you have a pathologist that's calling it that, there are probably better clues. Keep biopsying, send some immunofluorescence, send it to a different pathologist, ask your pathologist uh, to get a consult on it. I don't think that generalized exfoliative dermatitis is a, is a great diagnosis unless you know they're a long-term atopic. And then there's a rare condition called erythrokeratoderma variabilis uh, that's in the differential. I've never seen a case of that, so I wouldn't know whether or not to diagnose that. So what about the workup? It's really, uh, as we'll talk about in the next slide, it's mainly a histopathologic diagnosis and a clinical diagnosis. There are no hematologic labs to confirm the diagnosis, but these patients need to be monitored very closely with labs because most of them are erythrodermic. Most of them are losing a lot of fluid uh, and electrolytes through their skin. Uh, you see electrolyte abnormalities, hypoalbuminemia. You do see secondary bacterial infections, so you want to monitor their CBCs, uh, and you can see sepsis. And quite honestly, I did have an elderly patient with this who did die from the electrolyte abnormalities in the days before uh, we had uh, a lot of the good treatments we have now in the days before TNF inhibitors. So the workup is biopsy, biopsy, and biopsy. Uh, the features aren't pathognomonic, but you need to rule out other uh, papulosquamous diseases that are erythrodermic, particularly CTCL you want to make sure that the patient doesn't have Cesare syndrome. That's been more of a problem for me with psoriasis that you carry long-term than PRP. With PRP, you have the follicular hyperkeratosis. Uh, in the biopsy, you will see hyperkeratosis. You may see a checkerboard pattern of orthokeratosis and parakeratosis. Does everyone know what parakeratosis is? It's when, it's when the nuclei are held into the stratum corneum, which should be totally clear without nuclei. So you see this thickened skin on the biopsy where you have some, uh, some of the keratin has nuclei in it still, or the remnants of nuclei, and some of them don't. You see hypergranulosis with the thickening of the granular layer, and I'm able to show you pictures of that. You do see follicular plugging uh, with this perifollicular parakeratosis. You see broad reedy ridges and narrow dermal papillae. You may see some acantholysis, some breaking apart of the cells uh, in the adnexal structures, and uh, you see a sparse 
uh, superficial dermal uh, lymphocytic infiltrate. And this is a pretty good biopsy specimen. You can see the hypergranulosis, very thick hyperkeratosis. This was uh, supposedly taken from the body, so this wasn't palmoplantar. And so these are the elongated reedy ridges, and these are the uh, sparse lymphocytic infiltrate. Uh, follicular hyperkeratosis with maybe a little acanthalysis along the end here. And some, uh, again, just some ballooning out, and I thought there was some parakeratosis here into the stratum corneum. So to differentiate PRP from psoriasis, uh, in PRP you see the acanthalysis, the hypergranulosis and follicular plugging. In psoriasis you see more dilated capillaries and you get PMNs in the epidermis, which you do, do not see in PRP. So what about treatment? Uh, this, it's extremely difficult. It tends to be recalcitrant. Topical therapy simply does not work on its own. While it's inflammatory, this laughs at the most potent steroids. It doesn't respond to systemic steroids. Uh, phototherapy can be helpful, and other uh, systemic therapies can be helpful. And in my experience, you need combination treatment. So topically, you use lots of emollients, lots of mid-potency corticosteroids, largely for comfort, not for remission. You need enough that will give you broad coverage and quantity, and as I said, mid-potency. I tend to use a lot of triamcinolone. You can't be sparse. You don't have to worry about thinning these people's skin. It's very thick. These people will go through between three and five pounds, if they're a big person, of triamcinolone a month. And you shouldn't be afraid to do that for them. It does provide some comfort, uh, but will not make the condition remit. Uh, calcipatrine, Dovinex, uh, calcitrine has been used in the past, and topical retinoids, uh, including tazeratine, have been reported to be used. I've never seen them do anything, but it's in the literature. Phototherapy can be helpful, uh, especially narrowband, which is favored. Broadband UVB helps some. The problem is, is these people are not going to come to the office three or four times a week uh, to do this. They're more apt than a psoriasis patient who works, but I think if you're going to do this, this is a chronic disease, you probably need to work with these patients and get them a home uh, narrowband UVB unit. Uh, PUVA has fallen out of favor for multiple reasons, and extracorporeal photochemotherapy has been used in the past. Has anyone heard of this? Okay, so what, what this is, is basically it's a dialysis machine. You give people sorolin, uh, so it attaches to the white blood cells, you put them on a dialysis machine and you shine ultraviolet A light on their uh, blood as it's going through the uh, dialysis machine. So you're treating the white blood cells uh, with UVA, with PUVA, without treating the skin with it. Uh, it's, it's been done, it's a little bit helpful, but as you can imagine, it's very intensive, outrageously expensive, and not very available. So what about uh, systemic treatment? This is, this is what you have to do. Uh, with PRP. And the oral medications uh, that we've used include retinoids and methotrexate mostly. Cyclosporin and azathioprine have been shown uh, to work in some patients. Uh, injectables are basically the TNF inhibitors and uh, ustekinumab. So I call this practical approach. This is basically an approach that I worked out with uh, in, with Bob Swirlick and uh, when we shared a few patients at Emory. 
Uh, Bob's the chairman at Emory now. The key with these people is counseling is essential. If you see someone come in with PRP, you are throwing your schedule for that day out the window. You are sitting down with them and you are talking and you're laying appropriate expectations that this lasts for months to years, uh, that if they don't treat it and you don't get aggressive with it, there's a good chance that they can run into some electrolyte abnormalities and this, the response will be slow. And I, as with many conditions, I have found if you take the approach and don't worry about your time and sit and answer and you're frank with these people, it is extremely effective and makes the rest of their treatment course go very, very well. You need to treat these people aggressively and uh, use combinations. You definitely need topical steroids and systemic therapy. And the treatment that's worked best in, in our hands when I've combined, uh, done them in combination is a TNF inhibitor. The one that I've used most frequently has been Embrel. There, I looked up, there are some very good reports of Humira working well. Uh, and so that's a possibility. A retinoid, uh, I have used both Soriotane, but in kids I prefer to use Accutane. And usually in kids it's a female of non-childbearing potential. Uh, I've not had to do that, but Accutane is definitely the way to go in kids. And uh, an additional immunosuppressive, and I tend to use methotrexate. Get them on that. As they tend to resolve, <clears throat> wean back on one or more of the other treatments and try to maintain with the TNF inhibitor if you can. That's the best way to go. It's got the least amount of toxicity and it often sees people through. I have had patients respond within three months to this and I've had patients on this therapy for three years. So there's no way of knowing, but it definitely, the retinoid seems to thin out the plaques, the methotrexate seems to give great uh, anti-inflammatory uh, immunosuppressive effect and the TNF inhibitor is essential. The most recent patient I'm treating with this is a kid who started with it when he was 11. He's now 14. He has more of the classic adult type than anything. He really didn't fit the kid types. We treated him with Accutane and I think we've finally gotten him off his methotrexate. We've got him down to 20 milligrams every other day on the Accutane and he's on Umbrel right now. And uh, he was a little too shy to be photographed. so. I don't have his pictures for you. So what about follow-up? You have to do frequent follow-up with these patients, and the follow-up is really determined by the treatment. So if they're on a retinoid like Accutane or Soriotane, uh, if they're on Accutane, you have to see them every month, basically, because of the iPledge program. If they're on Soriotane, uh, you see them every month for several months, and then you can maybe get them out to every two or three months. You have to monitor their labs both for the systemic meds and for electrolyte abnormalities. And if they're having a poor response to treatment, you really need to repeat the biopsies uh, to rule out CTCL. The uh, possible complications come from palmoplantar plantar keratoderma and the restriction of the hands. They can get, uh, the ligaments and tendons can get a little bit restricted. So think about physical therapy if that's happening. The nail dystrophy and shedding can cause significant pain. Uh, and in older patients, like I said, I did have a patient die from congestive heart failure from the electrolyte abnormalities back before we had TNF inhibitors and before we really, we didn't even have uh, acetretin back then, seriotane. We uh, were going with a drug called Tegason, which was a tretinate. Uh, and then you can get hepatosplenomegaly. It's not something I've ever seen. 
but if you have a patient on methotrexate long-term, it's not clear whether or not you need to consider a liver biopsy at some point. So to summarize PRP, this is an extremely difficult condition. Uh, it's a, it can be difficult to diagnose, it can be difficult for the patient to understand and accept the diagnosis, and the treatment and response to treatment are not optimal, but you, we can really, really help these patients once we make the diagnosis and we get aggressive with the treatment. Uh, they need emotional support, they need medical support. Don't be afraid to co-opt the care if you have an academic center around or with the general internist, and you need to constantly evaluate and reevaluate these folks. So. Um, this would be a good breaking point if anyone has any questions, because I think the next slide I go on to the next part of the talk. Yes. Very fair. Um, I start with 25 milligrams. This is not, this is not mild palmoplantar psoriasis. With psoriatane, you're looking at full doses of methotrexate per weight, so 20 to 25. I've never had to go to 30 milligrams of methotrexate. You're looking at 25 to 50 milligrams of seriatine, and you're looking at a full-dose TNF inhibitor of choice. And I would even suggest that if you're using Humira, if you use Umbrella, don't get a good response, switch to Humira and don't get a good response, try to push the Humira up to weekly. And I, I would assume, I've never had to do that, but that would be my progression with that. And if those didn't work, I would consider doing infliximab uh, with Remicade. Great question. Is there one back? I, I have not. I have not. They've been, uh, I've never had to go to up to the medical director level, but I think it would be very easy, especially with EMR, to send a picture, and I don't think you'd have much of a problem. It's a little tough from up here. Okay. So, I was right, about a half hour on that one. So, um, now is a talk that I've been wanting to put together for a while. And uh, I appreciate you indulging me in this. I've called it observations from 25 years of dermatology practice. And my motivation for this talk was I've been doing this for about 28 years since my dermatology residency. And how many times in a week or a month do you have patients come in that just never fit the textbook. It's like, you know, they come in and they have a rash or they, they have a condition that you know what they have and they just don't respond to treatment or their course doesn't go like you expect. Like rosacea is always supposed to respond to a uh, oral tetracycline, right? But it doesn't. That's not one of the things I'm gonna talk about. But so it's, it's, it strikes me that as scientific as we are in dermatology, there are just many aspects of our specialty that don't fit the textbook. And so, and I'm, anyone who's heard me speak before or heard me speak out on evidence-based medicine knows that I think evidence-based medicine is a bunch of hooey. If you ever see, read an evidence-based medicine article, it always seems to come up with the conclusion counter to what you experience in clinical practice. And the reason for that is that they tend to use what's published in the literature regarding a condition and the treatments. And what's published in the literature are double-blind, vehicle-controlled, placebo-controlled trials that were meant to get a drug approved. They were never meant to be used to say, what is the best treatment for this condition? And so I urge you 
to be a critical thinker. And the motivation behind this talk is that I think it's extremely important for us to think and not just practice. And so I'm gonna share with you the things that I have thought about some over the last 25 years, and I appreciate you indulging me in it. And if people feel otherwise, this is by no means evidence-based. It's just some things that I have seen over time. You may agree, you may disagree. If you disagree, I think it leads to great discussion. And if you agree, I guess it'll be boring, so. Um, so the, the, the topics I've, I'm choosing to speak about in this talk fall under two categories, fallacies, which a fallacy is my questioning of an accepted concept or a teaching that I just haven't found to be 100% true, and observations, which are just observations of mine and my friends that we've talked about over the years in, in dermatology, some of my partners uh, in practice, that just are not documented by scientific rigor or text. There was a great dermatologist when I was uh, starting out that I actually had the opportunity to practice with a little bit in my, during my residency, a guy by the name of Walter Shelley. I highly doubt that most of you have heard of Walter Shelley. He died a few years ago. Walter Shelley uh, wrote an article in Cutis called Diary of a Practice, and he he had several things to say that included that the best part of going to the American Academy of Dermatology meeting was not what was said in the lecture halls, but what you talked about with your friends in the hallways. And so this is a talk that uh, reminded me a lot of Walter Shelley. So the first fallacy that I came up with is that alopecia areata is a self-limited disease in most patients. What we have found as we have practiced over 25 years is that a patient who presents with one patch of alopecia areata often comes back later in life and in your practice with another patch of alopecia areata. Or ask these patients if they think that this is a self-limited condition. And while you could take most to mean the majority or over 50%, and I'll accept that, I would say a significant minority of patients have problems with alopecia areata that extend beyond a few months. And so I would say that it often occurs in more than one area. It's often, often recalcitrant to treatment. And I think it gets better whether we treat it or not if it's going to get better. That it recurs in different spots over time. And when the hair regrows, it may be a different color. It may be white. It may not be the same shade of brown. It's certainly not likely to be the same shade of blonde. And it, it's just a uh, bizarre condition. And this was actually borne out um, a few years ago. I think three years ago, there was a review article in the JAD about alopecia areata. And this was, uh, they actually uh, agreed with that fact. But I think if you read text, they talk about how it's self-limited. And I really do not. Uh, I, I think that it's not fair to our patients to say that it is. I tell my patients who come in with alopecia areata that yes, a lot of times this goes away on its own, but it may come and go, and uh, you know we, we often have good success in getting care to regrow if it doesn't get too widespread. If it's occurring over a third or more of the scalp, all bets are off on what's happening with this condition. Interestingly, we don't use these treatments a lot, but you can use oral steroids. If you have a girl, uh, a young lady, or a guy who's getting married and they're having it, you can use oral steroids for a period of time to get alopecia area to regrow. You can also use cyclosporin, but they're not long-term treatments. And I think it's very important that people realize that. But when I was at Michigan, they were looking at cyclosporin for everything, and we had a guy 
who was on the cyclosporin study and he was given, being given five milligrams per kilogram, well, he was pocketing three of those five milligrams per kilogram for use afterwards because he, he was a pretty smart guy. I actually knew him as an undergrad uh, and he, uh, he had alopecia universalis and he regrew all of his hair and continued to have it regrow for like a year after the study because he pocketed the cyclosporin. So, so another fallacy. Guttate psoriasis almost always resolves with ultraviolet light in time. It's been my observation, uh, and this is, this is a pretty good picture of guttate psoriasis, right? It's been my observation that guttate psoriasis often occurs post-strep and you need to treat the infection, but it can occur after other infections like a ba other bacterial infections. I've seen it occur after uh, cellulitis, I've seen it occur after viral uh, throats where the strep test was negative and the ASO was negative. But it often eventuates in small plaque psoriasis, especially in mid to late teens. And it's very hard to get kids UV light nowadays. They're very busy, they have soccer, they've got ballet, they've got a billion things going on. Getting them to come into an ultraviolet light box is, is very difficult. It's hard to get them to go out in the sun to get as much exposure. Invariably, this occurs in the winter time and fall winter. So not living in a, a tropical climate, I find that you have to use a short course of methotrexate. And you can often get these kids, when I say short course, I'm talking three to four months. And you can often get these patients with gut hate psoriasis to respond to a short course of methotrexate. Uh, usually relatively low dose, 15 milligrams, maybe up to 20, and on and off in about four months. But just by a show of hands, what's, do people feel yes, no, people agree with this? Yeah, okay, it's, a, it's just, I feel I'm an aggressive therapeutician. If they're not clearing up in, in a month and a half to two months from their guttate psoriasis, I assume it's eventuating into small plaque psoriasis, which is, as gut, which is just those guttate plaques that can hang around for months or years, and you need to be aggressive. The longer they hang around, the more recalcitrant they are to treatment. So fallacy number three, atopic dermatitis resolves by age two, right? And it's like, there's something that's going on. First of all, these are, you know, we, we can all agree that that's a young kid. And that may or may not resolve, but try to tell this kid it was going to resolve by two or that unfortunate woman. We all know that atopia is a lifelong affliction. And it may remit for, the atopic dermatitis may remit for a time, but often these kids who have it before the age of two wind up getting eczema in other places at other times of their life. So I no longer will tell a mom or a dad that your kid isn't gonna have problems with this after age two, which is what we were taught during residency and, and what is in some of the textbooks. I let them know that it may recur, that they need to get on it quickly because if it recurs, it's harder to treat. And that I explained to them that our understanding of atopic dermatitis is not as advanced as our understanding of other conditions like psoriasis. We are stuck with these broad uh, coverage, anti-inflammatory drugs, that may or may not uh, be the best remittive agents. And it's very hit and miss. And so I think it's very important uh, in your practice to not, not promise everything to the mom who presents with eczema. I don't 
tell them that their kid's in for a rough time, but I do say, let's just take it by time. It can remit at various times, but there's likely to be some eczema, but it may be a patch or two. So how many people have seen aquagenic wrinkling of the palms? Is this something? Okay. So aquagenic wrinkling is something that hit the literature in the late 90s. It's something uh, that my partner, Joel Shaven, and I found that we were seeing in the early 90s. In about 1992 or 93, we had these young people coming in, mid-teens. They say it's more common in women, but we see it in both guys and girls, where they stick their hands in water, and they look like this. And it has a degree of discomfort. And when we first saw this, there, it wasn't described anywhere. We saw it like maybe three times in one week, which is probably more luck, good luck or bad luck than anything. And we said, what could be going on here? And what we decided was there may be some wrinkling is, has to do with keratin, so we started putting lachydrin, ammonium lactate on it. And it responded beautifully. So just between ourselves, we started calling this aquagenic dyskeratosis. We felt it was a keratin uh, problem. So it turns out that there is some component of keratoderma, and some of the literature calls it aquagenic palmal plantar keratoderma. Uh, Elise Olson wrote the first article on this and called it aquagenic wrinkling of the palms. Now, what is absolutely fascinating is there seems to be a significant association with a gene mutation that's associated with cystic fibrosis. That's the name of the gene. You should be aware of it. That's the Archives of Dermatology, now JAMA Dermatology, but Archives of Dermatology reference on it. And Leslie Lawley, who spoke to you earlier, uh, spoke to our uh, Georgia Derm meeting about this. And it, it's important to know this, and it may be worth some genetic counseling on these people. That may become the standard of care. It is not right now, but it's probably these people are generally carriers for the gene and not, uh, they don't have the gene for cystic fibrosis. Another observation. Trauma and or burns other than that caused by excessive UV exposure result in non-melanoma skin cancers. I don't know if this is a newsflash to you, but I, what, what occurred to me over time is if we listen to our patients, uh, they will occasionally teach us something. This is, uh, this is a picture from my practice. A gentleman came in. This was a uh, burn scar from an oven, putting his arm in an oven, and that is a squamous cell uh, in situ in that burn scar. But I have seen basal cells and squamous cells come up in areas of repeated burns. If you, you know, along a hairline from a woman who had curling irons, um, other types of burns like I showed you. But more importantly, I have probably seen in my career about 20 basal cells that occurred on the back of the hand or the antecubital fossa where patients said, you know, that's the exact site where I was stuck for an IV when I was in the hospital last year. And how many times have you blown that off when a patient's told you that? It's, I, I believe that it is absolutely true that when you traumatize the skin, you are traumatizing the DNA, and if there's some other factor there that predisposes to a skin cancer, one can uh, occur. Also, in people who are my age who had smallpox vaccinations over the years before it was eradicated, I've taken off four to five BCCs directly in smallpox vaccination scars. So it's just something to be aware of. Don't discount your patients who tell you that they uh, had a needle poke there. I just uh, thought that was rather interesting. 
Another uh, observation is that rhinophyma, more commonly than we think of, gives rise to non-melanoma skin cancer. And you need to look for it. And in fact, when I looked online and in the literature, I, I didn't have pictures. I did find two pictures where that was the case. I know that's not proof. But I have had four patients who had such severe rhinophyma uh, in my practice that I sent them to plastic surgeons for various treatments, sculpting, hot loop. And the tissue, the, the plastic surgeons, to their credit, always send the tissue for histopathology. And three of those patients had BCCs in it, and one had an SEC that was not clinically evident through the rhinophyma that was so thick. And so you need to be vigilant for that. One of them then developed more BCCs in the nose. He has a, a much better looking nose now than he did before he had the rhinophyma, but he also developed BCC. And so now he's got a Mohs repaired nose on top of the hot loop, and he actually looks better than he ever did. But uh, so I also had a patient who taught me to be careful of rhinophyma who just had chronic drainage. She was an older woman who made a mess in our waiting room several times, uh, and she was rather feeble and tended to pick at her nose. And I thought we were dealing with picker's nodules. And when she was finally biopsied, she had bilateral SCCs on both sides of her nose in the rhinophyma. So just be aware of that. Treat rhinophyma as a precursor or a potential breeding ground for skin cancers. Another fallacy is that uh, pityriasis lichenoides, the acute forms of uh, pityriasis lichenoides and the chronic form are separate entities. You can be a lumper or a splitter. I often tend to be a splitter, but in, in this case, I'm a lumper. I feel that PLEVA and PLC are, are not separate entities, that they are diseases on a continuum, and that uh, pityriasis lichenoides occurs on a spectrum. Uh, PLEVA are the early acute lesions that you see in some patients. Patients who have PLEVA can go through a transitional phase if they don't respond to treatment quickly, and then PLC are the later chronic lesions. And so, again, my partners and I have chosen to call this Mucka-Haberman disease, which is the, the name for it, which tends to encompass all the lesions, and it does tend to respond well to both ultraviolet light and or methotrexate. And just to show you what, what I feel has happened in a large number of my patients, you get a fair number with PLEVA, and this can resolve from here, it's very true. Uh, and you get some people that present with just PLC, but you have this whole group of patients over the years in our practice that have presented with PLEVA, but it's in transition, and you can see these kind of more chronic lesions developing out of uh, the PLEVA. And this is a patient who we would, in our practice, call Muka Haberman, because they have both acute lesions of PLEVA and lesions of pityriasis lichenoides chronica. So I think that uh, you can look at it many ways, but it's really helpful to just look at this as all pityriasis lichenoides. It's also very important when you see the acute lesions to make sure that the patient doesn't have lymphomatoid papulosis, which tends to be a pre-malignant to malignant T-cell disease. So another observation I have that I, I'm not sure um, you will want to believe or not is that I have found that if I at, listen to my patients and talk to them, that ringworts arise when a therapeutically induced blister is removed too early. When the skin from a wart that you've treated, either by cryo or by uh, canthrone or some other method, gets rented off and it's still very raw, 
that the virus hasn't died out and it tends to occur uh, in a ring. And so these are pretty good pictures of ringworts. Uh, many of you have probably seen this in your patients. If you ask them what happened uh, to your wart, you know, did, did it get knocked off? Every time I, since I thought of this or, or made the observation, <coughs> I've, um, I've asked, the blister has been removed before it's time. So just, you can choose to counsel your patients about this, just tell them not to knock off their blisters, but ask your patients who do have ringworts uh, about that. So one other observation, non-melanoma skin cancers can be detected at the time of biopsy based on their bleeding pattern. Has anyone noticed this? Okay, when you biopsy, I've tried to capture this on a couple of my patients, Non-melanoma skin cancer bleeding tends to occur at the edges of the lesion at first if you're slicing through the lesion, if you've got like a keratoacanthoma or a nodular BCC. And the reason for that is that a non-melanoma skin cancer, if you think about it, is epithelium growing into the dermis. That's what makes it a skin cancer, is that it's growing where it shouldn't. It's growing down instead of up. The dermis is a vascular tissue. Epithelium, the epidermis, <clears throat> doesn't bleed, but the dermis does. So after a shave biopsy, the epithelium from the non-melanoma skin cancer may be obliterating the central part of the lesion, and the vascular dermis uh, bleeds around the edges. And so I tried to capture this on a couple of patients. This is the whole cancer, and you can see the bleeding is coming from there and a little bit from there. And if you go to the next picture, you can see it's filling in a little bit more from the edges, but not in the middle there. Again, uh, same phenomenon. I'm not sure this caught as well. This is the whole skin cancer here. It's bleeding right there. And then you can see it started to bleed from around that edge, and it's filling in a little bit more. So next time you do a biopsy <clears throat> and you think you have a nodular basal cell or a squamous cell, look at the bleeding pattern. And so I, I, I actually use this to tell my patients, yeah, I think it's a skin cancer, and yes, you will be needing most surgery or... Um, you may be coming back to see us. So what about another fallacy? I, when I was in training, they used to say that plaque psoriasis, the severity was totally defined by the total body surface area. And I think now we have a better concept on it. And I'm not sure that that's uh, really true anymore, but you may find it still in the books that you have to have more than 10% total body surface area. I dare you to tell these people that they don't have severe psoriasis. So you can have localized severe psoriasis as well as uh, widespread severe psoriasis. And I think psoriasis severity has multiple components. Total body surface area, the plaque severity, location of it can obviously play a role. And if you don't have a patient who's totally self-indulgent, how it affects their quality of life. It's in the genital areas, it affecting their sexual life, that sort of thing. And the other fact about total body surface area that I thought would be an interesting historical note for you is when I was in residency training back in the dark ages of the 1980s, <clears throat> the prebiologics, the severity, severe psoriasis was defined as greater than 20%. If we needed to get an advanced treatment for a patient, you had to, the patient had to have more than 20%. When biologics were first being researched, they did something very smart. Mark Lebel and a group of dermatologists got together and they wrote a paper and redefined severe psoriasis. 
is being 10%. Because think about it, if you could only use a biologic on patients who have 10, 20% total body surface area psoriasis or more, there wouldn't be a market, and they never would have gotten off the ground. So the first thing they did was redefine <coughs> severe psoriasis, psoriasis as 10%. And hopefully in the future, it will get easier for us to prescribe medicines patients need. Uh, I think we're still having to get prior approval, and we probably always will, but hopefully it will get easier for the patients who have localized severe psoriasis that's unresponsive to standard therapy, uh, methotrexate for biologics. Another fallacy, and I think uh, we're going to come to the end here and we can take some questions, is that oral isotretinoin leads to long-term total remission of acne in the majority of patients. I think isotretinoin is a fantastic drug, and we couldn't really practice without it. And now with the level of antibiotic resistance, we need it. But I think it is going a long way to say that it leads to a total remission in all of our patients. We have created a situation where expectations are for perfection, and remission is defined as a total abatement of signs and symptoms of a disease. And I think we see the best long-term results in the worst cases of acne, but those patients probably still have a, an occasional papular pustule. It gives, I think it's safer to say that it gives a reduction in the vast majority of symptoms, but not necessarily total remission. And I mention this because our patients come in expecting never to have to deal with acne again, and I think it would do, we do ourselves a better service and our patients a better service if we set more realistic expectations. Uh, I think you see similar results uh, in more mild cases, but a patient who came in with a few pimples, you clear them up, and then they get it again, they're very, very disappointed, and so the results aren't as impressive. And I, I explain that to patients. It's not that I'm not like you and I don't use it in less severe cases than we used to, but I think it's very important to set the appropriate expectations. And one of my, one of my favorites that I will finish with is oral antimalarial agents, chloroquine, quinacrine, hydroxychloroquine, that it stated that they are highly effective treatments for cutaneous lupus. I simply uh, have found that this is not the case. And I wrote an article, a review article years ago on antimalarials. And, uh, you know, we all know what SCLE and, and chronic cutaneous lupus or DLE look like. But if you look at the literature, antimalarials really are more effective adjuvant treatments in systemic, uh, they're a good effective adjuvant treatment in systemic LE, and they're about 50% effective for cutaneous lupus in several studies. So they're not even found in the literature, if you look at the studies, to be effective in the vast majority. You need to wait three months before you judge them, and if the patient is a smoker, which a lot of these patients are, their uh, efficacy is reduced to about 20% of patients get good results and remissions from them. And high doses are needed. There's a lot of uh, talk about using low dose. Generally, you have to hit 600 milligrams, and at that dose, you get increased risk of ocular toxicity or retinopathy. So uh, I think I'm going to end with that one. Are there any questions? Yes. Alopecia areata. Um, if it's a kid, I, you know, I don't use a lot of oral steroids. I can't tell you the last time I did it, but I would dose it like I, in a kid, I would do a milligram per kilogram to start. I think you need to look at doing it for about three to four weeks. <clears throat> in an adult, it would be 60 milligrams with a, whatever your favorite taper. I tend to be 60, 40, 20 divided equally over whatever period of time I'm doing. So 
uh, for alopecia I had, it would possibly be, I'd probably do 60 milligrams for a week, then divide the last three weeks over 40 and 20 milligrams. Yes? For psoriasis? So with methotrexate and psoriasis, I think it's extremely important because it's in the literature that you give a five milligram test dose and see the patient back <clears throat> within about a week. And then um, I, I generally, if they are not a frail patient, I bump them immediately up to 15 milligrams uh, for two weeks, see them back one more time, and then usually I'm at 20 milligrams, and then I titrate to the response. And I do 20 milligrams for about a month. So uh, one week of five milligrams to make sure we don't bottom out their white count. I did have that happen once, so the patient wasn't a methotrexate candidate. 20 milligrams, uh, 15 milligrams for two weeks. If they're getting a good response, stay there. If not, bump it up to 20 for a month. If they're not doing well there, go up to 25. And if they're a big person, I will often go up to 30 milligrams. Or not often, occasionally go up to 30 milligrams would be a more safe statement. Uh, and then try to titrate down to the lowest dose to maintain a good response. Um, in an, oh, in an adolescent, um, usually 15 to 20 milligrams will do the trick. And, get them off in three, four months. The, now, have you been made aware that if you don't see a good response to methotrexate in three months with psoriasis, you're not going to see a good response? Is that, okay. So that's something that's very important to keep in mind. Methotrexate's going to give you almost everything it's going to give you after three months, a full dose. So you have to discount the run-up. But if you've had them on full dose for three months, so probably in the fourth month of methotrexate by the mechanism I described, if, you haven't, if you're not seeing the response that you want to see, you need to be thinking about alternative therapies. Any other questions? It's very hard from up here. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, you know, once you do the biopsy because you're not certain, you usually have some features that are pathognomonic for PRP if it's there. So, you know, it's always best to try to biopsy if you've got the island sparing in a keratotic area. That's probably the spot you want to go for. You want to go for the fresh onset lesion, not the, not the ones that are there. It's been my experience that it is largely a clinical diagnosis and the uh, and the biopsy is largely to rule out CTCL, but, uh, but if you go for that new onset keratotic lesion, you're better off. I guess the problem I have with that is Right. Right. Um, not necessarily, because I don't think you would treat a psoriasis patient with all three agents. You might do two of them, but you're not going to throw the retinoid on top of the other two. So if you're just thinking the methotrexate and, you know, and, and a TNF inhibitor, I, I don't think you have to worry about it. But if you're, you know, the color just becomes a little more apparent over time. And you see, often see, like, it comes down on the forehead, and it's not quite as scaly. And the, you, get, you may get a lot of scaling around the eyebrows. So, I mean, it, it does... PRP does declare itself over time. So, good questions. Anyone else? Okay, well, I have to catch a flight to Chicago, so I appreciate it. <laughs>